0: The back page football podcast. I will love it if we've been there. Love it. When the seagulls follow chora, it's because they sink
1: sardines will be thrown into the sea. And
2: do I say Okie
1: dok all the time? You do. I don't even say it all the time. You say it about, say, 15 times in the programme.
2: <laughs> People are telling us this is a great day
0: for Irish football. It's not difficult to get Trappatoni if you're going to pay him that amount of money. I'll tell you, it's a great day for his accountants and his bankers.
2: I can't believe it. Football, by the hell. BBF. Hello and welcome to the Treat the Back podcast, brought to you by BackpageFootball.com. Back once again to take a look at some of the big stories in football with the Higgins and Phil Green. How are you, lads?
0: Hey, Enda. Uh, how are you things? How are you guys? How's it going?
2: Shortly, we'll be joined by Alan Feely, a Spanish football writer based in Lisbon, to talk about the Barcelona presidency and the La Liga title race that currently has. Atletico Madrid leading the way and we'll also be joined by the Athletic's Scottish football reporter Jordan Campbell to talk about Rangers and Steven Gerrard and their title win at the weekend. F- first lads, um, let's get into it I suppose we've a couple of weeks hiatus so don't think we've we've missed too much um, and I suppose I, I don't want to start off on a on a negative note but I feel you know it's fair to say that football has been a tough watch over the past couple of weeks. And um, oversaturated, maybe lacking quality and entertainment, um, increasingly difficult to just sit down and, and enjoy a game. Um, and that's not just the, the Liverpool fan and me burying my head. Okay. I think um, when you have such a bad wave of football, um, nearly every night of the week, it becomes harder to appreciate the big games. Um, I found even with the Champions League back, I felt it just didn't have the same punch that it usually would have this time of year. I don't know if you're, if you're feeling the same at the moment.
0: Yeah, I, I think like in the kind of dog days of the, of the first lockdown when football shut down, uh, what we have at the minute was the dream from, for most of us. We were, we were, we would settle for one game, but what we really wanted was kind of a world cup style feast of football games every day. And I think what the last, maybe since Christmas, well, it's kind of proven is that actually you can have too much of a good thing and about well, a good thing might be stretching it, but you can have too much of, of what you like. And I, I think it might be a bit of a lesson for, for the authorities in that this idea that first kind of gained traction under Platini uh, in terms of UEFA and how they structured their international football, that they spread out the game so that there was a game every day of a window uh, is now kind of amplified now that there's a, nearly a game of some significance every night but the quality is not there and it's kind of exposing things a little bit more that maybe would have been hidden. Like not many of us would have sat down to watch Newcastle and West Brom in the normal run of things, if it would have clashed with Liverpool and Fulham or with the Manchester Derby. But because every game is televised, everyone gets to see how bad Newcastle and West Brom is. And it just drags down the general perception of the league. So I think when things go back to normal, I think it's a lesson people could be taking forward that actually the ability to televise everything might not actually be great for people's perception of the product.
3: Yeah, I think it's. you made a good point there, Phil. Particularly at the turn of the year, there was a real struggle to get into these games, but there were two in the last week in particular. Even though there was lots of goals, I felt Leicester Arsenal, the last sort of 30, 40 minutes, there was a real sort of sense of both teams strolling around the pitch and just not having anything left to give. And then the Palace-United match, I think, Phil, I tweeted at you at one point that this could be a, a preseason friendly in China. You know, it was just, <laughs> you know, it was just two teams who could have played for three years and nothing would have happened. You know, nothing to talk about, no chances to really discuss. And, you know, obviously we have been a bit spoiled in the last year when all these teams came back. and And there was lots of goals, certainly from a United perspective, you know, selfishly they really threw the kitchen sink at it, and you see other teams as well acro- across Europe. Real Madrid went on a great run, Bayern went on a great one, and it was all it was all new and a bit of a novelty, but now I feel like teams are really, really struggling, and uh, Off the Ball I actually discussed this recently, saying that like all the stats for the first half of the season were actually up upon previous seasons in terms of players running and the effort and all the statistics that go behind it, but the point somebody else made... Uh, to them was that like we'll see a huge drop now in the second half of the season and I just think everybody is wiped out there's no adrenaline to these games anymore there's no you know it's not for a lack of effort I to trying but I just don't think players have the legs there in these empty stadiums to go a full season of just trying to throw the kitchen sink at it and you know we're seeing teams even Liverpool yesterday changed the, changed the team around other teams have made lots of changes as well it hasn't really made much of a difference, so it's really starting to to drag on. It's like a World Cup that has lasted for eight months, you know, uh, and I don't think any of us could handle that. Um, so it, it's it's a real struggle across all the leagues, in fairness. You know, uh, Atletico, which we'll discuss later, have hit a bit of a wall. Um, Italy has been okay. Germany, Bayern are running away with it. But again, every, every league seems to have slightly just struggled to find that intensity, that you know, we're used to and watching football matches six or seven nights a week now is is for all of us starting to become a bit of a struggle mm. as opposed to what it used to be.
2: Phil, speaking of teams being wiped out, um, it's fair to say Liverpool have have well and truly been wiped out over the past couple of months. Um, I think fans, players, even the manager now has kind of quietly pulled the plug on the season. Um you know there's been no uh, Jurgen Klopp getting into it with Des Kelly on the sideline anymore. He seems fairly fairly disillusioned with uh with the form. Um I know they still have European um football still to come obviously the the second leg against RB, RB Leipzig this week but I mean so much has been said about them over the past couple of weeks. Have you have you anything to add about about the form. Are you, are you, are you concerned? Do you, do you have any kind of worries about Klopp? Maybe obviously he's, he's gone through a lot of personal trouble over the past while with his mother passing away and, and not being able to go home. Is he going to have a a, a summer of self-reflection and, and maybe think he has, um, you know, other places to be um, other than football or other than Liverpool or do you see it as, a, as something that you just need to ride out and, and get into the summer and, and, and maybe get a little bit of pre-season?
0: Yeah. <laughs> All those sort of thoughts have been running around my head quite a lot over the last couple of months. I, I think the last time we recorded, Liverpool were in the midst of what we thought was going to be a bad patch and that they maybe run, had, had turned a corner with the Spurs and West Ham results. And it actually turns out that the thing we thought was the worst part was actually the best part of the bad run. And now we're really in the teeth of, of of like I mean I think Sunday was probably the the Nadir definitely uh, coupled with the Merseyside derby I think they are probably the two performances with the least fight in them aside from like poor quality and and kind of a lack of creativity uh, it just it reeks of a set of players who feel sorry for themselves at the minute who understandably have looked at the injuries and the fatigue and have decided that it's kind of a way out for them because there's not a, a, a fight. There, when Liverpool go behind at the minute, and um, that would have previously been there under Klopp. Uh, as for his future, I think first and foremost, and, and I know you didn't bring it up, but like the even vague idea that it's time to make a change that the Klopp has as like it's kind of broken, um, I don't think that that should be entertained for a second Um, the man turned Liverpool into one of the best teams in the world over the last three years and absolutely it's been a bad two to three month stretch there's no denying it but if anyone in football has earned the credit to have a go again it has to be Klopp I mean his, his decision is a different one like you said he's gone through some kind of he's gone through some pretty terrible personal circumstances and he is definitely somebody who makes Emotional decisions. He's a very uh, uh, he's a person who's in, in connection with his with his emotions quite a lot. Um, I'd like to think that he'd he'd fancy another crack. I I mean, he, like he he left Dortmund in not dissimilar circumstances. Um, in that it was it was a sour ending. It wasn't a triumphant ending. Um, but I'd like to think he'd fancy a crack at having a proper squad with a a, a decent backline that's not made up of three lads who probably <laughs> aren't good enough to play for Liverpool. And whose shirt numbers added up to more than a maximum break in snooker? There is one for you. Um, <laughs> oh, at the weekend. So I, I think, like you said, it might just be about writing this season off. It's not as simple as that because what Liverpool need in the summer is probably three to four pretty significant players with significant outlay, and um, in a market where shifting big players or squad players to raise that money is going to be difficult. Uh, Champions League money becomes even more important notwithstanding the fact that FSG looks like they're about to sell a portion of their company and, and pocket, uh, pocket a nice few quid but Champions League money is very important to this to how Liverpool is run it's vital to the whole model hmm. and so writing off the season now and saying if they finish 7-8, what of it it actually matters from that point of view and from point of view of finance and what needs to happen in the summer um, I was writing today for the Anfield Rap that like it just feels like over the last three years, Liverpool on the pitch and off the pitch had nearly industrialized the idea of making right decisions. They just took the right option so frequently. It kind of reminds me of like the Dublin footballers, how frequently you just see them do the right thing over and over again. As simple as it might sound, it was actually a cornerstone of what made them so effective. And watching them since the turn of the year, it's the reverse. You know they're nicking the ball off each other's feet, even though the players in their worst position to receive the ball. They're like every decision they're making is a bad one, and they're compounding it with more bad decisions. And that stretches to the board, who we talked about previously, not replacing Lovren was was at, at best a gamble, at worst a mistake, uh, which then got turned into a mistake by, by the end of the injuries, and then not being in a position to go early in January and buy a centre half and scramble on the last day. So the board's made mistakes where in the past three years they've been getting flowers, rightly, for running the club really well. Klopp has been untouchable as Liverpool manager, but his uh, his substitutions of late at best have have had no impact at worst, have actually negatively impacted the team when they've been made. And this persistence with the high line is, uh, is bordering on recklessness at this stage because it's any long ball in over the top. So there's mistakes happening at every level of the club where for the last three years, they were operating at a level where they were actually taking so many right options. And it just feels like it needs a real hard reset. Now, I don't know many occasions in football where form has gone on this badly and a manager has gone on to turn it around for this long. I mean, this is relegation form. If they hadn't been top at Christmas, <laughs> you know, it's it, like it's genuine relegation form. I think mm-hmm. they're, they're second bottom on the form table since the turn of the year on goal difference Um, so most managers will be coming under pressure at this point Uh, I don't think Klopp should be but the question is with very little precedence can a manager turn this bad of a situation around the only mitigation you say there is that the squad has been decimated and it's such a weird season that you get Van Dijk and Gomez back you get a full Anfield do things feel a little better I mean, you hope so, but you are kind of dealing in hope now as opposed to knowing.
3: Yeah, I think it's a it's an interesting one about Klopp. I mean, uh, an awful lot has been made of his last season at Dortmund, but they were in the relegation zone at Christmas and they still finished yeah. in the European spots. So technically they did turn it around and he gave Tuchel a huge platform to build on and, and Tuchel really was able to cash in on those Europa League qualifiers early in the season when Obameyang, Royce and uh, Mikatarian all had double figures in goals and assists before the league season <laughs> even kicked off. So um, I, I do think he's willing to certainly dig in. I suppose his demeanour has changed. Uh, Kevin, you mentioned, you know, not even having the energy to fight with a sideline reporter anymore. But I think of, of all the managers, uh, and a lot has been made of it, obviously, you know, mocking him at times for it almost, but his connection with the crowd and how much he feeds off that energy... You know, even at Dortmund, um, and certainly at Liverpool, has always been very important to him. Obviously, there's that famous West Brom celebration, but the reason he did that was because he felt when he took over the job that there was a huge disconnect between the players and the fans, and that that was something he had to rebuild again. So, I think of any team to suffer with the lack of fans, it's actually helped some teams, but for Liverpool, I think it's been a huge problem. Um, and then, obviously, the Van Dyke and Gomez injuries are a problem, but they're more a problem for what they've called for the midfield, which is yeah. not being able to have that Fabinho-Henderson-Wijnaldum trio, which just seemed to give Liverpool all the options that they needed because those three were able to cover the fullbacks. They were able to supply the front three. They were able to cover any centre-back who could play the high line or you know who was caught out of position. um, And, and we touched on this earlier in the season where, Liverpool have suffered once bringing in a talented midfielder in Keita who probably isn't as functional as the other players. And it's kind of happened again with Thiago, who obviously in his own right is a a phenomenal player. But Liverpool trying to integrate these more talented midfielders has actually hurt them in the past. And not being able to rely on that midfield three because of Fabinho and Henderson covering the defensive positions has been a big problem for them. So I'm surprised that Klopp just hasn't tried to keep that midfield together at all costs, really, even if you had to play lesser centre-backs, which he's had to do. But overall, I think his overuse of Fabinho and Henderson in those defensive positions has been a real problem um, for the rest of the team and the functionality Um and now their confidence is just shot to pieces and they're all drained, the players and the managers. And yesterday they didn't really look like turning anything around. And at 1-0 halftime, you know, you just kind of expected the game to finish that way. Uh, and that's that's what happens. So, yeah, I, I think already they're looking ahead to next season. Uh, obviously, they're going to throw the kitchen sink at the Champions League, which is fair enough, because that, that suits their style, as we saw with the Leipzig game. And you look at other teams in left in the Champions League and, you'd fancy a, certainly a first-choice Liverpool eleven to, to take on any of them. So it could still be a successful season in that regard, but certainly the lack of energy from the manager, the players, the lack of crowd does seem to be affecting them more than any other team.
2: I think the injuries and the form especially has really highlighted maybe where the squad is at in reality. And I mean, this time last year, when you look at individual Guys like Origi, Shakiri Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. No, fine squad players in their own right. But now when it's come to rely on them, they aren't there. They don't have the quality. Um, and Klopp clearly doesn't trust them. Even when you go to look at guys like um, Keita and Matip, who are, you know, two really good players. But their injury history, again, proves that you can't rely on them. Um, and then well, I had tweeting. um Paul Little during the week and you know he suggested is the squad in need of an overhaul and I mean when you look at Salah and Mane um, who are 28-29 Firmino is hitting his 30s now um, Wijnaldum is probably leaving in the summer um, on a free like you could argue that they are in a a position now where there is a lot of overhaul needed especially in terms of depth um, and in terms of guys that you can rely on um, and not have to you know start the same front three every week which which they are at the moment and and, and it's just not working um, you know like Indy said relying on, on Fabino or Jordan Henderson at centre half um, when when Matip's on the sidelines uh, 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 as usual and, and Gomez and Van Dyke obviously have long term injuries um, so you would imagine that maybe not necessarily a, a complete overhaul but there are a lot of areas that need to be patched up um, and there are a lot of guys that they'll have to look at and you know ask themselves when push comes to shove, are they reliable? Are they going to be injured on the sidelines? You know, can we plug them in when we have injuries? And and it's proven that, you know, obviously we had the luxury of the past season or two where nearly everyone has been bulletproof um, to the point where, you know, Klopp could really pick and choose um, his rotation. You know, he plugged in guys like Chamberlain and Keita and um, Matty, you know, Depending on the opposition, whereas this year there's been so much injuries and and players out of form that it's nearly been forced upon him. So Phil, I don't, I don't know where they go from here from a squad perspective. Would you Would you agree that a kind of a mini overhaul is needed? Do you kind of look at certain guys and think that you know that they just simply need to be upgraded on because you know we can't rely on them?
0: Yeah, I think first and foremost. Um before we even touch on that, I think allowing for everything that's going on with the squad at the minute and how stretched they are, there's still a base level that they should be above. And that's definitely more than what they showed against Fulham and Brighton and West Brom and Newcastle. So there's something on a more kind of fundamental mental level, I think, that's going on there as well because the teams are putting out weakened as they are. should probably still be enough for the bottom six teams. But in looking... To the looking forward to to next season and to the summer, you you really are looking at probably you want another front three option who's as good as or better than Firmino, and um, you might want another midfield option to replace Wanyaldom. Just given the amount of games he plays and how reliable he is, and you probably want a centre half, and that's before you really get stuck into stuff. I mean, you could talk about another right back or whatever, but there are three places that you could look at and say those players in those positions will get 15 to 25 games all comps pretty comfortably each. Um, And then you look at players like Shaqiri and Origi from a quality point of view and Keita from a reliability point of view and players like that. And like you said, you wonder, do they need an upgrade? Reality of the situation is not all that business is going to be done. There'll be some that might get moved on if they can just with, with with the market the way it's going to be this summer and the fact that it doesn't like I mean I know I do it myself and like FIFA and football manager careers you can move out eight or seven or eight pieces of deadwood in the summer and you move in eight or nine better pieces for you in reality it's hard to actually get through that much admin from a club's point of view um, and especially in a year when people are going to be stretched so you could see some deadwood being moved on um, you could see a slightly larger squad than Klopp might like if they prioritise getting people in the door. Um, it's hard to know. Like, we could be talking about Liverpool going out and signing an exciting front-tree player and having Van Dijk and Gomez back and everything looking a little rosier next season. From here, it's kind of hard to tell. Um, like, the squad was perfectly fine for the last two seasons to get 90, 97 and 99 points, and it's famously not much different. It's just two years older now. And um, they're, they're not in a dissimilar position to what City were in a couple of years ago with, with, with Guardiola. That kind of first Guardiola team had all started to age together. And it's not that they've massively overhauled it, but they've just pieced bits and b- bits and pieces in here and there. Vodens come in from the Youth Academy. They've bought a few more defenders, as they always seem to do. Rodri's come in, stuff like that. So it might be a bit of that. It might be a bit of evolution rather than revolution um maybe over the next kind of two to four windows that, that, that might see them evolve a little bit. Um but they do need something. I, I think they need something.
3: Yeah, I just wonder is Klopp's loyalty to players who have been so good for him potentially problematic? I mean yeah. you look at the players who are either sold so or gone out in loan in the last twelve months, you know, Gruwich, Brewster, Harvey Elliott, I know he's very young, but definitely showed enough to say that he could be part of a Liverpool first team and be comfortable in them. And you just wonder, has he been ruthless enough in kind of telling the senior players, the front three that, listen, there are players coming up. We've had a great two or three seasons together. We've thrown the kitchen sink at everything. You've played 50 or 60 games every season. We've achieved everything Liverpool fans would expect from any player or manager uh, in the last 30 years. Whereas you still feel that... Um, that loyalty he has to players, particularly because they're at a club and Klopp's at a club that will turn around in the summer and say they won't spend £50 million on a team Timo Werner, he probably needs to look inside a little bit more and think, you know, do I have the solutions within the squad, within the structure of the youth team to, to find the solutions? And instead, they just kind of said, you know what, we have this front three, we have, you know, two sensational centre-backs in Van Dijk and Gomez. We don't need to replace Lovren after selling him. And it almost feels like just the luck has run out a little bit um, and that they don't really have the answers anymore. Um, and the injuries have been a killer. Yes, absolutely. No fans, as we've discussed before, and everything that seems to go wrong can go wrong. But you always need some something to freshen it up when you win a league, win a Champions League. Um, the best managers were always the best at noticing that and I just feel what Liverpool is like stick with the stick with the guys who got us here. And it just feels like that's that's really where the lack of energy has come from because I just don't think they have anything left in them to give the club or the manager anymore.
2: In the quickly on Man United um I was unfortunate to catch a little bit of the Crystal Palace game last week. Um and like you said I think I, I think a, a, a pre season friendly in China was uh, was generous yeah. to, to to what that was, and um, did to turn it around on Sunday against Man, uh, against City, um, and I mean they look generally fantastic at times. Um, mm. It's a little bit they're a little bit of a neither here nor there team. Um, I mean, at one one week. I look at, at what they're doing and I look at Ollie and I think, you know what, he could be onto something. He could be shaping them up to, you know, to be really successful down the line. And then the next week, um, like to, to take two examples would have been the, the Palace draw and, and West Brom a couple of weeks ago where they looked so abject um, and just completely void of ideas. Um, What, like what, what would be your synopsis of, of United at the moment? Um, obviously, second in the table now, and City are kind of running away with it. But I mean, find it in Europe, nice win over that um, a couple of weeks back. I mean, are you happy with with where things are going and in, in the trajectory under under Ali?
3: Yeah, a complete bunch of head melters, really, is what we have um, at our disposal. But I suppose looking at Ollie's two and a bit years now, it's it's probably not too surprising that they produce a level against Crystal Palace that's indescribably bad. Um, But, and you may have seen my various arguments with people on Twitter, you know, he has three wins in a row now against Pep at the Etihad. And there's only so long that something like that can be a fluke. And the way he has set up this team and the players he he seems to have the most trust in are the ones who deliver on the counter-attack, are the ones who can hurt the better oppositions. We're still slightly tragic and clueless against the low block. Bruno has helped that a lot because he can deliver goals from outside the box and create a lot of chances. But with Pogba injured and with him being the sole creator in the side, it's not too surprising that, you know, when you run him into the ground and Sporting did the same, they try to get 50 or 60 starts out of him every season. Uh, Solskjaer is trying to do the same and he seems to be a player who demands that. But uh, he even started the second leg against Sociedad, which is just bizarre after being 4-0 up. Um, but overall, it's not too surprising because these are the type of teams that, for some reason, Oli is comfortable with, and and certainly the match yesterday was the most comfortable I felt watching United against a high quality opposition in quite some time. E- even at one nil yesterday, had a period where you know De Bruyne and Mares both came close, but apart from that, um, they were very very comfortable. So I I feel that there's a huge just lack of concentration within this United team, and the bigger games can focus the mind, you look at the Everton result at Old Trafford where Maguire plays the entire team onside in the last minute from a free kick and you're you're trying to find answers for that for somebody so experienced, for the club captain to do something like that just seems bizarre and yet yesterday he was fantastic so overall with the players and maybe the manager as well, there, there is just that lack of concentration and lack of consistency over 90 minutes, not just week to week but just in terms of how they play but these bigger matches certainly suit them. You know, you look at the chances they created at Anfield, they probably should have scored one of them with Pogba and Fernandez. Um, They created the better chances against Chelsea. So overall, that counter-attacking style that they're able to reproduce more consistently, especially in the way games against these better sides, does seem to suit Solskjaer. The problem is you only get four or five of those a season. And if you want to go where I assume Solskjaer wants to take the United team, Palace at home, Everton at home, Sheffield United at home, West Brom away, etc. Those are the games you need to be winning and they've just let themselves down too often. And really finding that quality number 9 and probably the right winger as well will be the key to changing those games around. We we heard Cavani today. His agent saying he'll probably go to Baca in the summer. So, United really bring, need to bring in number nine in the summer, even though, you know, Martial was good yesterday, but he's not somebody you can rely on consistently. Um, at Diallo could be anything as a right winger, but I, I still think they'll try to look upgrade there in the summer as well. Um, so, there's a lot to fix, but there's a lot to work with as well. And the biggest thing that Oli has done, which I'll always defend him on, is if he was to go tomorrow, he'd have left the squad in a better shape than the previous two managers. And I think. Any manager that can say that um, can hang their hat on that. Um, And I think, you know, if you were to give the job to any top, top manager tomorrow and I'm not suggesting that that's what will happen at United, they'd be very happy with the squad that they have at their disposal. Um, And that wasn't the case for Van Hal. It wasn't really the case for Moyes, who took over a very ageing bunch of champions. And it certainly wasn't the case for Mourinho. Um, So... It's not too surprising that he's he's able to get those type of results against City, but it's the other games that let him down. And in the Europa League, it wouldn't surprise me if if they did beat Milan and then, and then suffer against, you know, a historically worse team than uh, AC Milan. But again, I mean, he's in the top two. He's in the shout with two trophies. Um, but they are still starting to look like a very tired team uh, week on week. Uh, and those, you know... Lack of subs that we see in the these United games, the starting the same players every week. Rashford was holding his back after 20 seconds yesterday. Fernandez looks run into the ground. I think that'll probably catch up us catch up on us over the course of the season. But they'll finish top four, I think, at this stage. I think uh, if you look at the run ins of of the other teams around them, I, I think United have got a better run in, uh, and with players coming back, they'll they'll probably be fine. But Overall, I, I think we'll be sitting here at the end of the season thinking that they've ran out of steam in the trophies um, and probably need a bit of a refresh and recharge in the summer at the centre forward and right wing areas. So it'll be interesting to see um, how he deals with that. But overall, yeah, you know, pretty pretty satisfied with uh, the job he's doing at the moment.
2: I know who wrote it. I can
4: remember his name, Rod Little. Guy, he the guy ran away and left his wife for a young younger. And depends of the quality of the eggs. In the supermarket, you have eggs class one, class two, class three, and some are more expensive than others, and some give you better omelets. So when when the class one eggs. Are in waitrose and you cannot go
2: there?
0: Real Madrid is no Barcelona, Is a office small team, they have many problems. I want my players to play with balls. <laughs>
2: We're joined by Alan Feely, a Spanish football journalist based in Lisbon, writing for Football Espana, La Liga Lowdown, and others. Alan, thanks for coming on this evening. No worries, Kevin. Thanks for having me. So, the big story from the weekend is Juan Laporta is back in as president of Barcelona. He's in for a second time, having been there between two thousand and three and twenty ten, which obviously kind of coincided with a lot of success at the club, particularly towards the end there when Pep Guardiola took the reins. Alan, there's a lot of problems at Barcelona at the moment, but can you tell us maybe a little bit about what Laporta's return means for the club overall?
4: Yeah, I think it's it's massive because um, the biggest thing at Barcelona for me has been the apathy of the club in the last few years, um, especially since um, Neymar left in 2017. Kind of a disconnect between the owners... Are not the owners the kind of you know hierarchy of the club and the supporters and the players, and what Laporta does is he kind of changes that completely because one thing Laporta isn't is dispassionate like he's a very very passionate man he loves Barcelona he loves Catalonia, and he has a really strong connection with the fans and the players personal connection with them, and he's also as you mentioned linked to that glorious era between two thousand three two thousand ten. Um, he was the guy who, uh, you know, gave Messi his debut. He was there when Messi broke into the first team. He signed Ronaldinho. Uh, he, he was the one who bet on Pep Guardiola coming back in 2008 when he was only the coach of the, the B team. So he's very, very, very skilled in terms of um, kind of, you know, plugging into Barcelona's identity. And his arrival brings some much-needed uh, kind of positivity and enthusiasm of the club when, for the last few years especially, things have been really kind of dwindling into nothingness almost, you know. So I think while, as a president, he'll have very executive duties that he's going to bring in very, very quickly and will make a big difference in the kind of you know outlook of the club, I think it's almost the mood is the biggest thing right now.
2: Mm. He's been left with a, a bit of a poison chalice there by um, previous executives. It was only a week ago that um, the club had been raided Um and Joseph Bartomeo was arrested. Could you tell us kind of what happened there? And I suppose, you know, like th- there's a lot of debt at the club. There's you know there's a lot of trouble. There's going to be question marks over Lionel Messi and how long more he's going to stay. Um, you know, it sounds like Bartomeo or the the um, Porta rather, is coming into a, a such a difficult job more so than uh, than he did first time round.
4: Yeah, I guess the first time around it was also quite difficult because, you know, the club weren't in a great place at the turn of the century either. Um, And, you know, the kind of trust he gave Rijkaard, almost similar to Koeman in many ways, another Dutch kind of, you know, former kind of uh, player, uh, kind of brought the club from, you could say, from a C to a B. I know they won the, the Champions League in that time, but still they never kind of built a team to the degree that Guardiola did later on. So I think, you know, the way his tenure is being viewed from the outset anyway is a case of, Bringing Barcelona back to a position where they can stand on two feet again and really kind of look the rest of the elite in Europe in the eyes, and I think that's going to be done under Cumin, and then ideally bring in maybe Xavi in a, a couple of years, perhaps, to kind of take the club from that solid basis to you know where they believe they should be. And Laporta said that he believes that within two years, between one and two years, he have the club completely clean because they are in massive debt, as you mentioned. But they also are—they uh, make more money than any other club in the world. Like they're a, a huge commercial entity. So I think that you know once things open up again and things are opening up in Spain gradually, and fans are lent to stadiums again, um, I think Barcelona's financial strength will recover quite quickly. Also, you know the Messi situation is obviously kind of hanging over the club heavily. I think you know that's actually turning in a positive way, in my opinion. This is just you know personal opinion, but. I think that the way he's plugged into things kind of on and off the pitch in the last few months says a lot in terms of his commitment to the club. It was his first time ever voting uh, on some, in, during Sunday's election. And he's been a player since, you know, he was a baby almost. Um, on the pitch, he's kind of linking up players like Pedri with Frankie de Jong, you know, with Francisco Trincao, Usman Dembele, you know, even Antoine Griezmann to an extent and kind of really kind of building a relationship with them on the pitch. And he looks to be enjoying his football a lot more. Also, he, he respects Ronald Koeman. You know, as an Evertonian, I, would, I had my doubts when Koeman was appointed because I don't rate his managerial skills. But I underestimated the he holds within Catalonia. He's a genuine club legend. And he could actually tell Messi what to do, which wasn't the case under Kike Seti and his assistant, Eder Sarabia, last season when there was a well-publicised incident where... Um, you know, Messi kind of used vulgar language telling him where to go, basically, Eder Sarabia when Sarabia was instructing him during a water break against Centro Vigo. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, if, if I was the guest, I would say Messi's going to renew his contract this summer and it'd be a much reduced uh, salary because of obvious financial considerations in the post-COVID world. So I think that that would be a big financial weight off the club, but also kind of almost a spiritual weight off the club too because I think if Messi left in acrimonious circumstances, it would be a disaster. Um but one thing for, for sure is that with Laporta he won't leave in acrimonious um, circumstances. He may leave for sure, but I think if he does leave, he will be given a goodbye, he'll be graceful because Laporta is very savvy in that regard. And he also has a very strong personal relationship with Messi. So yeah.
2: That's interesting because it was about last summer when um there was a bit of a standoff between Messi and the club um and the executives in charge there, and I think the expectation of a lot of people was that um he's probably going to leave if not last summer but maybe this summer um especially with uh, the salary that he commands um and the suggestion now that you know he could take a bit of a pay cut um i suppose shows his loyalty to the club and especially when you look at his stats um like there's been no drop in his performance um like he still delivers week in week out and you can't ask much more from him really can you
4: yeah, I mean, he's obviously the same player he was. And there's moments in games where he tries to make a run or he tries to pull off something that he can't pull off anymore. And it's almost heartbreaking to watch that because, as we know, you know, when Messi was in his prime, he was almost like a godlike figure. But he's still an excellent player. Like, he's the top scorer in La Liga. He's 19 goals. He's currently the Pichichi, just ahead of Luis Suarez. Uh, and he's still a very, very viable player on the pitch. You know, he still contributes a great deal. Um, but yeah, I think that. You know, things have changed in the last year. I mean, like last summer, you know, he was all set to go to Manchester City, it seems. That was the place he was going to be going to. Um, But if you look at that Man City team now, I mean, is Messi really what they need? I mean, like, I'm not saying he wouldn't improve them, but I just think the direction Guardiola is going with this new iteration of City, Messi coming almost seems kind of out of place. And the talk in the Catalan press especially has definitely cooled down about a return to Manchester City. Um, Paris Saint Germain were the big one in the last few months. And, you know, they were quite shamelessly kind of, you know, fluttering their eyelashes at Messi. Like, I mean, I've never seen a more comprehensive pursuit of one player ever. Like, I mean, it was Mauricio Pochettino was talking about him. Leonardo was talking about him. Angel Di Maria was talking about him. Um, you know, several uh, Neymar was talking about him, of course. Uh, Who's the other midfielder I was thinking of? Leandro Paredes is talking about him. So he literally had his ex teammate, his buddy. His international teammate, the coach, and the director of football all talking about him, you know, in public. Um, but I think the, you know, development of their financial situation, the fact that Neymar is staying and, you know, they're looking to retain Mbappe as well, will mean that they can't go for Messi as well. So I think Mbappe's future is almost kind of taking priority in that regard. And depending on where he goes this summer and what happens with him this summer, um, I think that can influence the Messi situation. But, uh, but yeah, I think even the Copa del Rey game last week, they were playing Sevilla in Barcelona and they came back from losing 2-0 in the first leg to win 3-0 in the second leg. And Messi was after the game yeah, having like a preheated heated verbal exchange with Manchi, the Sevilla director of football, in the stadium. Like almost like, you know, things got quite heated, like they were like being pressed up against the wall. And uh, you know, Messi was kind of taking offense to the fact that um, Manchi called Cumin a crybaby during the previous Saturday's La Liga game. It's a Spanish word, like, you know, it's it's not literally crybaby, but it's the closest thing and they use it a lot in Spain. And I think it shows that Messi was kind of, you know, almost like violently protecting Cumin and the club, shows how much he cares, you know. Uh, Manchi was kind of saying, you always win the same way, you're almost, you know, cheating with, you know, refereeing decisions. And Messi was kind of saying, yeah, well, you're going back to Sevilla, nice and cosy, so good luck, like, you know. So I think that's kind of, you know, uh, confrontational streak that he has combined with his on the pitch form means that you know he's definitely still Lionel Messi even if he's not the Lionel Messi we knew from you know 2012 or 2015
2: You mentioned Xavier earlier on is the expectation now that he's going to come in eventually or has Coleman kind of justified his hiring at this point um, I mean they're not completely out of the title race but would there be an expectation on Coleman to deliver a trophy within the next year or two and then move on to Javi, Or do you think Coleman maybe has enough credit now that he could be given a, a long-term spot at the club?
4: Um, it's a good question. I mean, you know, they're, they're quite close to Atletico on the table now. Um, and they're kind of neck and neck with Real Madrid. And, you know, the, the draw on the Madrid derby certainly helped their title prospects rather than hindered it. And they were actually the big winner of that game, really. Um and then, you know, they're in the cup final of the Copa del Rey with the play Athletic, the uh, Athletic Club, which they'd be expected to win, even though they lost the Super Cup Final to them in January. Um, but I think there's no way that, you know, Cumin could conceivably not win a trophy next season and retain his position. I think yeah. that it's non negotiable. This season is a bit different. I think, you know, he'd need to win the Copa del Rey to stand the chance. he need to retain. Uh, kind of a spot in the title race till the end and you know ideally come back and beat PSG uh, this Wednesday night but that's obviously highly unlikely given the nature of the first leg but uh, I think that you know Kumin like I said earlier he's such a club legend that they're not going to disrespect him by canning him especially yeah. with uh, now that Porta's in charge because he has handled himself very well you know he's kind of rolled out a very difficult period he didn't make any signings himself he didn't bring any of his own players in instead he's brought through young players like uh, you know uh, Ilesh Mariba, Mariba, who just kind of broke through recently, he scored his first goal at the weekend. Pedri already mentioned he was actually going to be sent out on loan until Kumin came in and said, "No, he's he's staying." Uh, Ronald Araujo, who was at Barcelona B team center back last season, he's turned into one of the best center backs in Spain. So you know this you know, Frankie Dion, he's changed his position completely, kind of really revitalized him. So there's several players that he's worked really really well with. Ousmane Dembele is another one I forgot to mention. And he has done well in bringing them through and kind of dealing with the difficult situation. Uh, and the results are coming now. I mean, the Cup game was bad. The PSG game, you could almost point more to, you know, Kylian Mbappe's excellence than anything else, I think. Um, and he has also masterminded some good wins, like in Sevilla, for instance. He outclassed uh, Julian Lapetegui tactically, um, which is no mean feat, because Lapetegui is a very, very capable coach himself. But I think there's no doubt that Xavi is a long-term man for the club. I mean, the way Barcelona see themselves, they see themselves with somebody like Xavi leading the helm. So I would predict that Koeman will be given next season and then Xavi will come in. Uh, maybe initially in a general manager role, some kind of overseeing role, and then eventually he'll take over. Um, because that's, that's you know, it's it's a very natural partnership. Xavi won the title yesterday in Qatar. Um and he's on course to win six trophies this season. If they're still in the fight for all six trophies, they're available to them. So he's a capable coach. Santi Cazorro was in the media recently who plays for him at Al Sad, And he said that, you know, he's ready to coach Barcelona. He could do it tomorrow, basically. So I think that that's definitely the case. I think if Victor Fanta had come in, it would have been expedited. I think Juan Laporta is a bit more chilled in the way he views the whole situation. Um, so I, I, my prediction would be that, you know, Koeman will get next season. And then
0: Chabi will come in. That's what I think. Alan, uh, credit where credit's due. When we had John in the summer to preview the season and we asked you to to tip up a team for the league, you said you thought Atletico Madrid will win the league. Here we are in March. They're three points ahead of Barcelona with a game in hand. As you mentioned, uh, City rivals Real, further two points back. Um, their the their title has been led by the resurgence of Luis Suarez, who, of course, they signed after Barca cancelled his contract. And... Um, First of all, maybe what do you think has has helped drive Suarez to achieve what he has achieved with Atleti this year? And do you think that they can push on and, and win their first league title since twenty fourteen now? Well,
4: I think what's driven Suarez is revenge, pure and simple. I think that, like you the, the <laughs> being slighted by by Barcelona, has absolutely fired him up. Like we all know what kind of character he is, um, and I think like the marriage of him going to work with Diego Simeone. Um, it's just it's it's a beautiful partnership you could say really and also just the way Atletico view themselves they're very kind of on the shoulder the underdog and they like kind of being confrontational so I think it suits the club suits him down to the ground you know Um, and yeah I definitely think that they they can win the title like I mean I think they're better suited to being on the shoulder, as I mentioned, than kind of being the underdog throughout the season and then coming, coming through towards the end, as opposed to leading the pack the whole way. And like the, the nature of their lead um, up until a few weeks ago was so big that it was very, very daunting, you could say, because, you know, if they ever blew the lead and they have to an extent, they, they haven't really, but they blew the the certainty of it, you could say, because of Madrid and Barcelona's form. So I think it's, by no means a sure thing. I think it's going to be a very competitive title race for uh, until the end. I think Barcelona's former is is sensational at the moment. Madrid are still winning games uh, when they have to, um, and you can't rule either of them out because of the players they have and the, the, the championship. Win, the championship experience they have in the team. You know what I mean? Like Madrid, like Tony Cruz, um, Luka Modric, Casemiro. Together, they've started fourteen of the last nineteen games. Madrid have played. Like I mean. And they're all... Like, Casemiro was 29, but the other two are north of 30. Madrid is 35. Like, these guys are, you know, experienced winners. Karim Benzema, still scoring goals. Sergio Ramos is yet to come back. And when he does come back, he'll be hungry to kind of, you know, go into the summer when his contract expires um, with full strength. He, he won't want to be going into the summer on the back of an injury hit season. So he had a extra motivation. Thibaut Courtois is one of the best goalkeepers in the world, I think, at the moment. Um, so they have plenty to offer. As do Barcelona in a different sense, um, but I think Atletico are definitely in the best place. Kieran Trippier is back now, and like it's really remarkable how important he is to Atletico Madrid, like he genuinely is because you know he gives them that outlet down the right wing um, to kind of make the three the back system of using the season work properly, and also when he's not there, like you know so Cholo Simeone has often put Marcus Trente right back like he did against Chelsea in the Champions League, and when you do that, you're missing it right back like Trippier. You know in terms of set pieces and just bringing the ball out, as I mentioned, but you're also missing that threat in the final third that Lorente brings because Lorente is one of the top attacking midfielders in Europe, in my opinion. You know, his numbers don't lie, he's almost in double figures in both goals and assists this season. Um, so I think it's several things really. This identical team, I think it's the kind of new system Cholo is putting together, uh, put in place. Sorry, um, you have you know, Trippier coming down the right back. You have the experience of Koke in central midfield, the captain. He was the only player from that first title-winning team back in 2013, still at the club um, and still playing a pivotal role. And then also you have Marcus Lorente and Luis Suarez scoring goals and contributing assists and just giving them that edge in the final third. Uh, And then, of course, as well, you have Jan Oblak, who, in my opinion, is the best goalkeeper in the world. I really think he is, um, and he's been phenomenal. So... I think a lot of the season, the beginning part of the season, if you look at the XG stats, they were actually outperforming their XG by like a remarkable degree. Um, especially Suarez, uh Lorente and Oblak. Like Oblak in terms of keeping clean sheets, he was making saves that he shouldn't be making, really. And then Lorente was scoring goals so he shouldn't be scoring. Suarez wasn't even though he was outperforming his XG he wasn't because he's a lethal marksman we all knew this anyway you know like he's one of the best finishers in the world exemplified by Sunday's Madrid Derby he's just a very very good finisher so yeah I think there's a lot going for them I think you know Cholo has a mentality where he can recover from that little slump they had um, and refocus for the tail end of the season for sure
3: Alan, looking at the uh, recent results for Spanish teams in Europe, it was quite a harrowing campaign for some of them. And the success that Spanish clubs have had in Europe in the last sort of decade or so, it reminds me a bit of uh, Serie A clubs in Europe in sort of the 90s and the 2000s, where you had Parma, Inter, AC Milan, Juventus really dominating. and And then Spain came along with Barcelona, Madrid, Sevilla, Atletico Madrid, Valencia all had success. But it was quite reflective of the form and the league and the quality in Spain at that time. And then you see Sociedad who, you know, were tipped for the league at one point after their first 10 games or so, they were playing so well, lose four 0 to United, which was obviously a big surprise. Barcelona looked like they're going out to PSG Madrid, very fortunate in Italy with the red card to beat Atlanta. Granada were just hanging in there, but overall it's been quite a tough campaign for Spanish clubs in Europe in the past couple of seasons. Um, do you see that that's a reflection now on the sort of dip in quality we're seeing in La Liga, which especially with Ronaldo not there anymore, and Barcelona and Atletico slightly declining when it comes to their European form as well? Uh, or do you just think it's it's kind of a one-off? Uh, no, I think it's definitely
4: definitely a thing. Um, like there's a chance next season that you know for the first time since two thousand four, two thousand three, two thousand four. There's no Cristiano Ronaldo, Sergio Ramos, Lionel Messi in La Liga. That's a realistic chance because both Ramos and Messi are both out of contract in the summer. Um, and like they're the three biggest personalities La Liga has had um, in this century, really. I think you know. So they kind of exemplify the the golden period, you could say, of La Liga teams in, in Europe in the last decade. But I think that you know it's financial is really is what's happening, I think. You know, I mean, like, even in the summer, you had Leeds coming in and taking Rodrigo Moreno from Valencia, like a, a newly promoted club taking, you know, a star striker from one of the biggest clubs in Spain. It's a strange thing to happen. Also, you had a case where, you know, Jose Campaña was on the verge of leaving Levante, and it was either Leeds or Sevilla he was going to go for. You know, like, again, Leeds or Sevilla. Sevilla just won the Europa League uh, last season. You know, and I mean, like the fact that Leeds have the financial power to kind of, you know, overpower Sevilla is quite remarkable. And another example, Joan Jordan, who's a talented central midfielder for Sevilla, was uh, basically had the choice of going to West Ham or Sevilla when he joined Sevilla in the summer of 2019 from Ibar and West Ham offered them a good contract. Like, West Ham had much more money than Sevilla did. So I think it's not so much the club's at the top of the scale, and that's more of a freak situation because of what's happening at the moment in terms of the way Barcelona's squad was managed. It wasn't transitioned properly at all. And the same with Madrid, to a degree. They had very, very good players who were kind of, you know, weren't replaced or phased out properly, and the recruitment was very, very poor. And that reflects their performance in European competition. Uh, But also, I think, you know... In the case of Barcelona, I think the PSG game was almost a freak situation in many ways because of how good Mbappe is. And the same with Sevilla with Bruce Dortmund. You know, how good Bruce Dortmund were with Jadon Sancho and Erling Haaland in the team. and Because, I mean, in that game, for instance, the first half was a bit of a blitz, for sure. But in the second half, you know, Lopetegui switched his shape, gave more protection to his back four. And it was a much more even second half. And that tie is still alive, even though it's unlikely Sevilla will come back and win it. Um but yeah, I think it's mainly, you know, not so much the big two because they're always going to be the big two. They're always be destination clubs and they will rally from um, this kind of COVID pandemic and come back with strength. Uh, but I think it's more the mid-table and lower half clubs who are struggling with the change in terms of the quality of players they can bring in because of the might of the Premier League specifically. Um, I don't think it's Syria case because I think Spanish football is much better organised than Italian football. And, you know, in terms of intendences and stuff that it didn't really mirror the Italian situation. There was no, there's no major scandals there. Uh, I think also that while Italian clubs had a golden period um, in the late 80s and early 90s, you could say, I think Spanish clubs period came at a time where it was much more monetizable. So while, you know, AC Milan and Juventus won the hearts of, you know, Irish and English people watching Channel 4 on Sunday afternoons, Barcelona I mean, did won the hearts of you know African kids and Chinese kids and Indian kids and Japanese kids. Do you know what I'm saying? So I feel like there's much more commercial strength there than there was in the Italian case. But I think for sure the Premier League is completely dominant at the moment and it will be for the next few years.
3: And then just on the money in the league, obviously we... Barcelona's debt is well documented and, and obviously we've we've seen some things released during the last week saying yeah that the Barcelona and Madrid have been state funded in the last 20 or 30 odd years. Do you think that it'll have an impact on the players that, you know, all the clubs in Spain are able to attract? Obviously, Madrid were linked heavily to Haaland's release clause last week, but overall, you know, they are struggling to attract players who they usually would have been quite comfortable in chasing. I mean you know, Madrid had to pull out of a deal for Donny Beek because they couldn't afford him uh, after the COVID deal. Um, you know, Zidane has always wanted Mbappe, but Madrid can't really seem to afford him either. Do you see anybody being able to afford the players they want this summer?
4: Um, yeah, I mean, like the Halan thing is funny because, like, as soon as those goals went in on that Tuesday and thir- Wednesday night when Mbappe and Halan were scoring, in Seville and in Barcelona I was like oh god like the the, the um the talk is going to be intensified by, by a million this coming week and I was right like i mean i've literally written more articles about Kylian Mbappe and Erling Haaland than i have about most spanish players like it's just the nature of the speculation you know but um the talk with Haaland is that he wants to come to Madrid um and that you know Florentino Perez is a very very good relationship with the hierarchy Dortmund's and Haaland has always idolized Cristiano Ronaldo. He very much sees himself as um, being in his ilk, and he'd love to play for Madrid. He's also friends with Martin Odegaard, who's I know he's in London Arsenal at the moment. But um, they kind of envisage playing together um, in their white next season, I think. And then with Mbappe, it's a bit more complicated because Madrid's plan was always to bring in Mbappe this summer with Eduardo Camavinga, the uh, Lille midfielder, or the Red midfielder, sorry, and then go for Halland, the next summer but Haaland's development has changed that somewhat and uh, you know the financial situation has changed it also um, but at the same time I think like their allure is still very much strong I mean even the David Alaba situation like since La Porta was elected they talk about Alaba going to Barcelona has increased somewhat too like they still carry a serious cachet these clubs especially the big two Um so I think that you know a lot of the talk about bankruptcy and about debt is somewhat overblown because while that's a real thing like these clubs can still find money when they need to they can still put it out of the hat and they still can attract players too and I think once like I said once the stadiums reopen and once the revenue streams go back to uh, normal I think they'll be back on their feet pretty quickly I don't think it's I I think it's really a combination of a weird sporting moment in terms of the way their squads were managed respectively as well as the pandemic as well as the might of the Premier League that's made it look worse than it is but I think that in five years' time, I think, you know, they'll still very much be at the top table, very much jostling with the other teams. But it's the rest of the league that's the problem, I think. It's the Levantes and the athletic clubs and, uh, you know, even the Sevillas, you know, those clubs trying to break into that kind of ring-fence league are finding it very, very difficult to do so.
2: Alan, quickly before you go, um, it can probably seems a little bit silly bringing this up, considering they just won the league last year, but... Is there any pressure on Zidane, um, you know, just given Real Madrid's expectations are, are so high, like they're third at the moment in the league. Um, they're not out of it by any means, but is there pressure on Zidane this year, maybe next year that, you know, question marks might be placed on his on his job if, uh, if they don't start winning leagues or European Cups anytime soon?
4: Well, there was serious talk in the middle of the season um, because he was under serious pressure um, and then the players rallied as they always do and kind of you know put together a good run to turn things around uh, I think the time is coming to an end I don't think he's the stomach for it anymore or the enthusiasm for it anymore um, and he was speaking recently even he was asked about it and he was kind of quite aggressively responded he kind of said you know this is our league we, we won this league last season we're still defending the, we're still defending the title and he said in the summer, will talk, things will change, um, but I can defend this title. That was his whole point. So I I could 100% see him going in the summer. I think Mauricio Pochettino being taken off the market for the time being makes it less urgent, Um, but I think it's come to an almost natural conclusion in many ways. I think they're kind of sick of the sight of each other in, in some ways, the kind of Madrid hierarchy in Zidane. Not that there's any problems there, there's not, I just think that... A cycle is over basically, and it's very, very hard to refresh as we saw with Guardiola at, at Barcelona. You know, I think the intensity of that job, especially when you're a club legend as a player as well as a coach, is very tough to handle. And Zidane is never somebody who's wanted to be in coaching for, you know, 20, 30 years. He's always seen it as a kind of a short term thing. So I think that he could very well go in the next couple of seasons. Like, I'd be shocked if he was there in three years' time. But I don't think he'd be sacked acrimoniously. I think it will be a very mutual parting of ways. i would they shake hands and leave the table with kind of, you know, a bit of dignity, a bit of grace. And I don't think there'll be any hard feelings there.
2: Okay, good stuff, Alan. Thanks for coming on tonight.
4: No worries. Thanks a million for having me. Enjoy it.
2: like to be joined by Jordan Campbell from The Athletic to talk a bit about the SPL and Rangers title win this past weekend. Thanks for joining us, Jordan.
1: No, thanks for having me on, Kevin.
2: Um, So, to be honest, I don't think I was alone really in having major doubts about Stephen Gerrard um, going to Rangers. At the time, it seemed like such a, a risky move um, and I thought, you know, was he better off getting a job in the championship like Frank Lampard did um, but in fairness, Jared, now he's kind of proved everyone wrong. Can you tell us quickly about what he's brought to the club, particularly in in the last season or so, where you know their form has just obliterated the, the league in Scotland.
1: Well, in in terms of what he's he's brought to to Rangers, I think it's standards is the thing when you speak to people, you know, across the board, whether it's ex players, you know, people behind the scenes, that it's Premier League standards how they describe it. You know, he's brought a a coaching staff that have all come, come from Liverpool and, uh, and been learning their trade there for the best part of a decade. So uh, he's obviously grown up his whole life there. So um, I think when he came into Rangers, he was probably a bit shocked about how um, dilapidated certain things have become, how um, certain things had been allowed to slip in terms of the standards around the club. So, uh, you know, look at the training base, for example, he... There's, there's no one area that uh, the, the club that's you know been left un, untouched um and I think he's been the real driving force behind that in terms of um, raising the standards and making sure that when he, he can speak to players and try and um, entice them to come to Rangers that he can say to them I've got the best I've built the best coaching staff around me you'll have everything to succeed and you'll have the best facilities that are possible so I mean just some of the things like the, the layout of the canteen for example was made to be more calm you know there's an analysis room built onto the annexed onto the first team changing room the, the layout or aim was changed um the gym was upgraded the new hybrid pitch was installed um like you know you could, the list could go on and on even Ibrooks has been major changes so um I, I think that's in terms of setting Um, setting up his stall that was one of the major things that he's given himself a a real strong base to to succeed and uh, and as you say it's three years of uh, a gradual improvement um, with some setbacks major setbacks last season um, where it looked like it might be the end of the road for him but the way he's turned it around since February March last year has been pretty spectacular. Um, I don't think anybody expected Rangers to you know, potentially go the whole season unbeaten and run away with the league, almost thirty points ahead. So, it's um, it's been a remarkable turnaround, and I guess it's it's probably one of the most dominant seasons in, uh, in recent history.
2: You had a really good piece um on the Athletic um over the weekend, just talking about you know his his career at the club so far. Um, one bit stood out to me, um, and that was the expectations. At the club you said this year had to deliver silverware celtic were aiming to make history by reaching 10 in a row and the pressure to deliver this number 55 was palpable i was kind of surprised to hear that there was kind of a an expectation and pressure to deliver the title so soon like is that just the rangers fan base that you know they w- weren't necessarily going too well but they still kind of demand success pretty much immediately
1: well, I think that's the thing. Like, No matter what the financial disparity is or um, no matter where a, a certain coach and staff and group of players are in terms of their, their progression <laughs> in Glasgow, you, if you're in a two-horse race, um, it doesn't matter whether the other horses get a you know, £10 million or 10-yard head start, you're still expected to overtake them. So um, I think he knew what he was getting into and he knew that it wasn't going to be an overnight thing. Um, I think he was committed to... To turn that around in the long term, and that's what he's done. Um, but I think definitely last season was the major disappointment was that it was a second trophy trophyless season. They obviously they should have won the league cup. It was remarkable that they missed so many chances and conceded an offside goal. It seemed like you know everything that could go against them went against them that day. Almost felt like they were destined just not to work out under Gerard um especially when it got to february march to drop 13 points in, in 10 games celtic ran away with it. um and it looked like basically gerard even said in in the press after it was the the hearts game that you know i, I know what, how much i want it but you know i'm not sure my players do um and there was a real sort of I real feel that this was the end of days um, uh, for his reign, um, especially that day in Tyne Castle where twice he was given the, the chance to to state that, you know, no, he wasn't thinking about leaving, he was here for the long haul, wasn't having any doubts. There was, there was a real hesitation about him and it was only natural, but I think, you know, his emotions that day suggested a guy who, was really thinking about whether he could turn that around. Um, but the, the pandemic, in a strange way, probably came, you know, not a good time, but for want of a better phrase, it, it did allow them to, to reset and reassess what they needed to, to do to be able to go um, over the full course of the season. Um, obviously, behind closed doors made it a bit of a different dynamic. Um, I think the players have been able to relax into the season. If there'd been 50,000 fans there, would the sort of scar tissue of last season made it really, really uncomfortable and really tense. It probably would have. I'm not saying that Rangers wouldn't have come through that, but I definitely think there is an element that they have been able to just focus on the football. And when it comes, when you take away all the the emotions and the the distractions of the crowd and the atmosphere at away grounds, when when it comes down to who's the best footballing team, then I think you've you know if you go back to that October game um, against Celtic, that was the real statement that was. You know, Rangers just look like a far better coached team than Celtic. Um, and ever since that game, it's been it's been really smooth sailing. They've not really had much pressure on them, and I think that's why you've been able to see them keep playing, um, consistently fairly well up until at least midway through December, and then they were able to grind it out. And uh, as you see, seen they're now coming back onto the, the A game. I
2: must say, your piece kind of changed a few misconceptions I had about Jared as a coach and a manager um, you mentioned that his man management is shown true and I was kind of under the impression that he didn't necessarily have the character to be a, an arm over the shoulder kind of a manager and um, that he wasn't as advanced with his ideas and his plans but you know he seems to have really grasped uh, you know kind of every kind of facet of, of being a modern day manager and um, I I mean early on in his in his time there he did a few interviews that seemed a bit kind of negative and downtrodden. Um, you know he was very critical of some of his players, but he seems like to have a good grasp of, of being able to balance. Um, you know, being tough and uh, and being the kind of uh, the good guy as well to to get everyone on board with him.
1: No, I definitely think that the you know when you look at Gerard the man management um aspect and the tactical aspect that. You know, I think people thought Gerard, the player, um, when it's a top player like that, you always try and, yeah. you know, extrapolate how will they be as a manager? What will their style be? And you usually look to their character and the way they played and think, well, it must mirror that to some extent. Um, and with Gerard, obviously, was known as the sort of, you know, box-to-box, all-action player, where, you know, it was it, 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 he would take the game with the scruff of the neck, everything would be 100 miles an hour. Um, he's a Roy the Rovers type player. So I think everybody thought... The you know his team might be a, might resemble that, but it's been pretty different to that. I think the words to describe them is controlled, calculated. It's very methodical. Um, they've got a real clear structure uh, in the team. So, um, I, I think that's partly down to the fact that, as you say, he's got his clear strengths, and you know they are he's a he's a natural leader. He can he sets standards. He's got an aura about him which brings people with him. He knows how to... I think he understands the dressing room dynamics and how to make players tick. Um, that's, if for speaking to players, that's, that's what they say. that they, He knows how to make them tick and he knows how to get a group together and build that real team spirit. Um, but I also think he's he's smart enough that he realised that I can't go into Rangers and do everything. Um, he only had 18, 18 months as the under-18 coach at Liverpool. Um, I think that's why you saw... Michael Beale appointed as his, as his first team coach because although they didn't have a lot of pre-existing relationship being at Melwood and you know soaking up um, different coaches and what they would speak about you know, I think, I get told that there's a really open plan office and you would hear coaches exchanging ideas and talking about different things different sessions and they really tried to soak that up and even though he didn't speak to him a lot, Michael Beale was somebody who was well regarded around Melwood as being a great a great coach um who could really implement his ideas. Um and I think that's that's in a sense Gerard's clearly got his ideas. I don't want it to be con- confused that you know Michael was the only guy who, who does anything um in terms of implementing the style of, of the play. Gerard's got the overarching um ideas and I think he, he's humble enough that he allows um, Michael able to take the majority of the training, but he will step in if he thinks things need changed um, or, or he'll be vocal if he doesn't like something. Um, But I think he's clearly appointed people who complement his strengths and made sure that he's got a team with, with different skill sets around him. You could even look at Tom Culshaw, who, who he knew if the academy at Liverpool was the defensive what's for the defence, what's in set pieces, Gary McAllister's the experienced head who is the goal between the, the players and the, and the and the management. So um I think when you look at them all different, they all tick different boxes, but Gerard's certainly the figurehead who brings it all together and is a real driving force um behind it.
0: Jordan, um, you mentioned there that Gerrard, as a player, was was a lot of things. He was box to box. He he was all action. He was kind of grabbing games by the scruff of the neck. But this team that he's presiding over has this incredible defensive record. It's nearly Jose Mourinho esque nine league goals all season. It is it, crazy. And um, who in that in that coaching squad do you think uh, is most to is is due most credit for putting together this kind of solidity that's kind of defined Rangers season?
1: Well, I mean, it's it, Tom Culshaw sort of do a lot of unit work and I was told that was one of the things they, they really focused on in pre-season because um, they, they had an extra, I think nearly seven weeks and compared to the first two seasons when they came in because they were in the first round of qualifiers and it was two legs, it was literally two or three weeks they had so you're having to cram in double sessions for fitness you get tactics, ball walk, you're trying to cram it all in whereas... There was non contact to start me. so again they were they were basically working in units. So, um, Colshaw deals with a deals with the, the defence, and he did a lot of the lockdown zooms um, with the defence as well. So, I think that's why. Um, so, if you were, if you're looking for somebody to say who works with him on the most regular basis, it would be, it would be Um But obviously, all the coaches have got their own their own input. But I think Goldson, Goldson's, um you know, for me, he's probably the leading candidate for for player of the year Um, I think he's just been an absolute rock at the back Um, and one thing you don't realise until you're at games behind closed doors is just how vocal he is Um, and that's not just in terms of you know giving people in front of him information about picking up players closing spaces that's in terms of if Rangers are going to press him and Tavernier are the two you always hear shouting like go 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 they're they're the triggers for it which I guess is because they can see the whole pitch and they decide how to squeeze the game, but uh, I think Conor Goldson's got a lot of respect in the dressing room. Um, for his for his winning mentality and he's he's um he's focused, but uh, I think he's been he's been just dominant um uh, been dominant this season. I think um <laughs> you look at him and you th- you you, you, can, you wonder how how far off he is. At, at, you know, big teams in England looking at him because he's been he's been absolutely solid and he looks to have all the attributes you you would look to. Uh, you would look for in a centre-half, a uh, modern-day centre-half, especially on the ball as well. So, um, I, I think it's been, it's been a, it's a ridiculous record, really, on like nine goals in 32 games, um, yeah. seven clean sheets at the start of the season. I think, like, you know, must have like two or three shots on target against him. Um, John McLaughlin's probably looking at thinking, "What have I done to be dropped by Al McGregor?" Uh, for Al McGregor, but I think you saw in the last couple of months that when Rangers, it was inevitable that they're only going to be able to keep that up the whole season, that complete dominance every game. But when he's been called upon, McGregor's produced the goods, and um, I ah, yeah, pretty. Thirty nine years old, he still. Um he's still producing brilliant saves. So um I that and a, and a solid defensive front him has been a pretty uh, a pretty good combination for Rangers.
0: Obviously this uh, title win by Rangers is happening at the same time as uh Gerrard's boyhood club, Liverpool are going through a historically bad run. Uh, and it's obviously made people kinda of join the dots a little bit on looking into the future as to uh Gerard potentially arriving at Anfield eventually. I think we can all agree that long term that's definitely Gerard's aim and is probably something that all being equal will happen. In the more medium term though, is there any indication whether Gerard would be looking to maybe put different managerial strings on his bow in terms of going somewhere else for a different experience? Or do you think he's kind of in it for the for the longer haul with Rangers and looking to really build something there?
1: Well, I guess uh, like the Liverpool dynamic and you know, how it aligns time-wise with with Klopp is is always going to dictate things um, in terms of how long he's there at Rangers, I think. But if Klopp's there until 2024 when his contract expires at Rangers, then I don't think there are many jobs that are going to tempt him away because he even said at the weekend that, you know, all he's ever wanted to do is win trophies. And I don't think going down to England to be a mid-table manager really interests him and really drives him as much as being a dominant team is. And I think... He want to build Rangers, and you know, just toppling Celtic, he want to leave Rangers in a position where he's put two, three, four titles in a row. He's had a crack at the Champions League. He's really asserted his dominance and flipped the um, flipped the power um, balance in, in Glasgow. So, um, no, I definitely don't think he's in a rush to leave. And I, I think he's always came in with the intention of being um, long term. Dave King, the former chairman, even said this week that you know, for his personal opinion and working with Gerard, is that He's not somebody who'll walk away for contract or, or leave something early, um, unless it is for a Liverpool job. But again, we don't know how Klopp whether he'll be able to arrest this decline. Whether next season will be back to the the usual standards. Um, I guess if it doesn't and they're looking for somebody else, then you would think Gerard would be in contention. But again, is it is one title in Scotland enough to, um for him to move straight to Liverpool, Um, because, you know, there's no no Liverpool lanes running the club at Liverpool, it's very methodical and there's numbers behind these decisions, so although I'm sure his legendary status gives him a boost, I think he knows that he's not a certainty to go straight there, but, you know, (laughs) creating such a dominant team and doing so well in Europe certainly don't not doing him any harm, but a crack at the Champions League will certainly help him as well.
3: Jordan, you mentioned earlier about the pressure in Scotland and being a two-horse race, and we need to focus on the other horse now, I'm afraid. And I feel like yesterday summed up Celtic season, really, with a, a Hall of Fame disaster class in front of goal. I think they had 28 or 29 attempts, and most of them either wide or straight at the keeper. It's been just a season of... You know, error after error. I mean, I was looking at the age of the squad yesterday and I, I was surprised to see that only only two of the players are over 30, Lee Griffiths and Scott Brown. So in terms of maybe fatigue after nine league titles, I, I don't think that's the issue. It just felt like everything that could go wrong with them this season uh, did go wrong, whether it's, you know, the trip to Dubai and an injured player getting COVID or, you know, Neil Lennon walking away and having his own struggles. And obviously a few of the players have had their own personal problems as well. Rangers form aside, is there anything you feel that you know Celtic didn't do this season that perhaps they would have done in other seasons, or or one one moment that felt where their struggles were really highlighted?
1: I mean, like just when when you asked me that, um, that's what I'm trying to think of, like the one defining the moment. But to me, I always just come back to that that first Old Firm game. I know you could look at the game in January where Celtic actually played well for the the first half an hour and could have been, you know, a goal or two ahead. But I always come back to that first game and it just felt strangely easy for Rangers. Um, it never felt like a, like an old firm game where, um, Celtic had any belief. It just looked like they had the, the stuffing knocked out them. So that was, I think the surprise to everybody that, um, this, you know, this quest for 10 in a row peter- petered out so, so, uh, so quickly and without really any, any fight. Um, you know, I think you, you, at, you last season that everybody think looked at Rangers and thought, I oh, they just don't have that winning mentality. They don't have that, you know, unquantifiable, you know, winning mentality that's built up over nine years and being in the same group and that, having that uh, continuity that Celtic had. But I think continuity can eventually become uh, your own worst enemy if you hold on to players for too long and you stagnate and become a bit short term. In saying that, Celtic did spend, you know, around about fifteen million in the summer on Barkas, Ayeti, Tumville who's obviously been excellent, but Duffy has obviously been, you know, a bit of a disaster their signing. So um, you know, I think when you look at those three players right in the, the spine of the team, Celtic Celtic's recruitment just didn't wasn't good enough. Um and I think you looked at Rangers, they they never needed major Repairs to the squad, but they probably needed a bit more depth and um, the ability to change things. And I think Kemal Roof came in, and although he struggled with injury when he has played, he's added that firepower, that ruthlessness, and players like Rebo, Kent, they've all stepped up. Whereas Celtic have looked, um, in the final third, have just looked a bit rash at times. I think, like, although they had 28 shots, like I seen a stat yet today actually, which said that Celtic have the second lowest. Um, you know, expected goals per shot because they shoot for outside the box so often. So, you know, sometimes it can be easy to say the twenty-eight shots, but how many of them are actually actually good chances? And for watching Celtic this season, it often looked like they just sort of ran out of ideas at times. Um, whereas you've been used to them constantly finding a way to win, um, and, and getting over the line. Whereas it looked like if they won their head, you felt there was a fragility about them, which again i don't think anybody quite foreseen before this season because they had been so dominant and they had kept going for for nine years but um just looked like a bit of short termism had um hindered them well you know i think when a historical titles like that you've got the dominant team who are just trying to go over the line they might be falling over the line and you get the challengers who are constantly coming up and closing the gap and i think those two those two things just uh, diverged in, in the end of,
3: And in terms of what they can do to turn it around, I mean, you mentioned their, their signings there, but they've been linked actually with a lot of young players for the upcoming summer, particularly Kyle Joseph at Wigan, who's, you know, in a struggling Wigan, Wigan team has looked quite good. Um, do you see them almost trying to attempt a squad refresh at this point?
1: I don't think they've really got any other option because, you know, right through the club, you've got the the spine of the club, you know, Lawwell it, it is going to be replaced after nearly twenty years, but but Dominic Mackay, you've got potentially a new director of football, you'll have a new head you'll have a new head coach, manager. Um, you know, they've already lost in charm and Frimpong in, in January, and then you're looking at the major assets, Ayer and Edward are into the last year of the contract. And I don't imagine they'll be wanting to, to stick around at Celtic for for much longer. So um I think when you when you look at that, if they, if they need to cash in on those two then you're looking at a major repair of the squad, um, which, you know, could potentially be a, a fresh slate for Celtic and they might get their recruitment bang on, but there's a lot of a lot of dominance that will need to fall in the um, the right place in the summer if they've if they to get back on top. But that's not to say they can't do it, but they certainly um you know, it looks like there's gonna be at least sort of ten, eleven players turnover wise. Um and that's never easy to start the season on fire. Um so it'll be interesting to see whether they, you know, how early they can get a manager in, how early they can, um, get the recruitment. Because if they do that, then they'll obviously give themselves a, a better chance of getting back on an even queue around us.
3: And youth football in Scotland has actually been hit very hard by COVID. There was a lot of cancelled matches, which other leagues haven't experienced. And if you look at the youth recruitment at Celtic in the last couple of years, particularly players like Leo Connell, Connor Daniel, Arzani, et etc. Uh, That used to be their forte, bringing in those type of players, but they've slightly struggled at that lately. Um, Do you see youth football in Scotland at the moment as, you know, something that needs reviewing in terms of the structure and the players that are coming through? Or is it just more of a local SPL thing?
1: Well, I mean, like there's, uh, you know, Scottish Scottish football in terms of, you know, I think it gets to this sort of crisis point every so often, or every. It seems like a cycle where if there's no, um, you know, a certain amount of players coming through at the one time, it's like you know, what do we need to do to change it? But I think the performance school was something that, um, had you know was not going to produce players overnight. But I think in the last couple of years, you've started to see the minutes those players are getting, and it looked like it was really helping produce players. Um, but whether that's uh, whether that's able to. Um, continue um, you know SFA have made a few changes behind the scenes so we'll definitely see where um, where the performance school um, project goes but I don't you know it's hard to it's hard to make a blanket assessment because if you look at Dundee United for example the amount of young players they've got in, in the first teams is remarkable um, you know they're really investing in their youth set up so it's difficult to say you know all teams in Scotland they're producing players even Hibbs are producing the boy Josh Doig who I think has got the potential to go to the very top so um hi, Rangers and Celtic you know Rangers have got Nathan Partison just broken into the team but how they manage him um with James Tavern here in front of them will be interesting Kai Kennedy's another player that I've I've tipped could be could be one that could make it at Rangers and make a big impact but um be interesting to see what happens with him but you know, overall, I think Scottish football. For speaking to people, I, I wrote a piece on this actually, and a couple of months ago about Brexit and how the you know the English clubs being banned from signing under under sixteen plus and um, in, in Europe uh, will affect the domestic market because automatically they're going to be more interested and in, um, there's going to be more appetite and more need for them to, get, to to shop in the UK. And I think the danger is for Scottish clubs is that they're producing these players and their, their credibility on the European stage is is improving, which makes them more attractive to English clubs. Um, And there's not really any defence mechanism to keep them when they get to 16. Because um, obviously they're free to sign anywhere as long as they pay a development fee. So I think that's something to watch over the next couple of years is how many players go down south because it's certainly picked up the last five, six years. Boys moving down south at 16 18, but if clubs can create the pathway, Mullerwell have another one who have been really good at that. You know, David Turnbull, Alan Campbell's in the, in the squad there now. Um, there's a few others that have produced in the last few years. Um, you know, I think the pathway is there at some clubs. And, you know, I think most players would be wise to stay at the clubs and uh, for a good few seasons and get games under their belt rather than going down south. But, I think it's a, I th- I think Scottish football is no, Scottish youth football anyways, not no in the doldrums. But, it's um, it's definitely it's been a difficult year, I think, because the budgets at clubs just means they're not able to pay for these con- constant COVID tests, um. So it's always been difficult to try and arrange games, and that's probably going to see some boys stagnate. So I think a lot of them at the bigger clubs have gone out in loan, um, to lower league to try and just get them back playing football again. So hopefully, it's not impacted them too much.
2: Jordan, quickly, um, back to Rangers before we sign off. There- Playing Sparta Prague now on Thursday evening um, in the Europa League last sixteen, and knowing Stephen Gerrard's pedigree in a Europe, European competition, it's not something he's going to take lightly. Is, is what's the expectation now around Europe that they can concentrate there? Um, like, will they will they be looking to go far, possibly even win it out, or, or are they a little bit more uh, a little bit more realistic? Well, I
1: mean, I don't. The, the thing about Gerrard's team is that you know, if you look at the their track record against, uh, what well, in Europe, you know, 43 games, five defeats, two of them against Lever- Leverkusen, you know, they've never really been out of the game, any games apart from Leverkusen. They've beaten the likes of Porto, oh, they've beaten um Braga, Galatasaray, um, you know, I could go on their own, two draws against Benfica this year, which they should have won. Um, So, you know, I think there's no fear for Rangers anymore. And I think they, they know they can compete with virtually you know, any team in that competition. I think even even Arsenal is somebody I, I thought I think Rangers could beat Arsenal over two legs, which is something that I never thought I would say <laughs> um any any time soon. But, you know, three years ago before Gerard came in they were losing to Progress neither to think that they could actually potentially beat Arsenal Is um it just shows that the scale of return they're in. But I think that's because of the style they're playing. This isn't a back to the wall Rangers team in Europe. This is a team who are are well disciplined but you know, it's a really good shape that they've drilled for three years and they're comfortable in the ball. These are these are players who can hurt teams at the top level. So I don't think, I think Sparta-Prague is a, a difficult tie for them, obviously to beat Leicester. And they've had a good um, pedigree in the last few years, but I don't think they'll be a fear factor. Um don't think it'll be as open as it was against Antwerp, because it was a pretty pretty chaotic uh, two games against them. But, you know, get through to the quarterfinals and, you know, it depends on the look of the draw, but I don't see why Rangers would then think, that's the ceiling of their ambition I, I think when you get to that stage it's anybody's really
2: Great stuff thanks very much for coming on tonight Jordan
1: No, no worries mate, Anytime. thanks for having me